At these words, all the elves in the hall cried aloud in grief and amazement. These are evil tidings, said Celeborn. Man, I hate doing elves. <laughs> uh, elves are, I don't know, it just, uh, it does not feel like I have found something great for the elves. The, the dwarves I can manage. It feels like the dwarves I can kind of lean into. I haven't found it yet. I feel like there's something there I could do with the elves that would make them just sort of the, a, a little bit less for Threthriel <laughs> from uh, Dimension 20. Uh, Fantasy High Season 2. If y'all if y'all want to watch somebody go just absolutely dunk on <laughs> classic fantasy elves for about an hour and a half, check out the uh, Fantasy High from Dimension 20. Oops. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, chapters 7 and 8 uh, of The Fellowship of the Ring, part 2. The first chapter we're going to jump into today is the Mirror of Galadriel, and uh, as such, let's talk a touch of review. Last time on Lord of the Rings Out Loud, we've been adventuring with Frodo, and as of our last episode, things just got as hard as they've been so far. They've been following the guidance, both literally and uh, sort of figuratively over the long term, uh, the guidance of Gandalf for a long time. Um, Frodo and Sam have left the Shire and carried this ring quite a ways. Uh, and now, as they have had to pass through this mountain range, kind of the last big one, um, sort of defending the western lands, including the Shire, uh, from the shadow over Mordor, and the lands of men, uh, Rohan, Gohan, <laughs> Gondor, excuse me. The way through the mountains was not easy. They tried to go over it, didn't work. They don't want to go around it. They'll have to go through it. And so they do, but during that time, they meet something terrible, awoken in ancient days by dwarves underneath the mountains, underneath Caradras, and... Gandalf perishes in their escape from the mountains. They do make it all the way through. They come out the other side, and we now find ourselves in the forests of Lothlorien, inhabited by elves. But without a leader, where will they go next? Chapter 7 The Mirror of Galadriel The sun was sinking behind the mountains, and the shadows were deepening in the woods when they went on again. Their paths now went into thickets where the dusk had already gathered. Night came beneath the trees as they walked, and the elves uncovered their silver lamps. Suddenly they came out into the open again and found themselves under a pale evening sky, pricked by a few early stars. 
There was a wide, treeless space before them, running in a great circle and bending away on either hand. Beyond it was a deep foss, lost in soft shadow, but the grass upon its brink was green, as if it glowed still in memory of the sun that had gone. Upon the further side there rose to a great height a green wall, encircling a green hill, thronged with malorn trees, taller than any they had seen in all the land. Their height could not be guessed, but they stood up on the twilight like living towers. In their many-tiered branches, and amid their ever-moving leaves, countless lights were gleaming, green and gold and silver. Haldir turned toward the company. "'Welcome to Karas Galadon,' he said. "'Here is the city of the Galadrim, where dwell the Lord Celeborn and Galadriel, the Lady of Lorien. But we cannot enter here, for the gates do not look northward.' We must go round to the southern side, and the way is not short, for the city is great. There was a road paved with white stone running on the outer brink of the fosse. Along this they went westward, with the sun ever climbing up like a green cloud upon their left, and as the night deepened more lights sprang forth, until all the hills seemed afire with stars. They came at last to a white bridge and crossing, found the great gates of the city. They faced southwest, set between the ends of the encircling wall there that overlapped, and they were tall and strong, and hung with many lamps. Haldir knocked and spoke, and the gates opened soundlessly, but of guards Frodo could see no sign. The travelers passed within, and the gates shut behind them. They were in a deep lane between the ends of the wall, and passing quickly through it they entered the city of the trees. No folk could they see, nor hear any feet upon the paths, but there were many voices about them and in the air far above. High away over on the hill they could hear the sound of singing, falling like rain upon leaves. They went along many paths and climbed many stairs, until they came to the high places and saw before them, amid a wide lawn, a fountain shimmering. It was lit by silver lamps that swung from the boughs of trees, and it fell into a basin of silver, from which a white stream spilled. Upon the south side of the lawn there stood the mightiest of all the trees. Its great smooth bowl gleamed like gray silk, and up it towered until the first branches, far above, opened their huge limbs under the shadowy clouds of leaves. Beside it a broad white ladder stood, and at its foot three elves were seated. They sprang up as the travelers approached, and Frodo saw that they were tall and clad in gray mail, and from their shoulders hung long white cloaks. "'Here dwell Celeborn and Galadriel,' said Haldir. "'It is their wish that you should ascend and speak to them.' One of the elf wardens then blew a clear note on a small horn, and it was answered three times from far above. "'I will go first, said Haldir. Let Frodo come next, and with him Legolas. The others may follow as they wish. It is a long climb for those who are not accustomed to such stairs, but you may rest upon the way. As he climbed slowly up, Frodo passed many flats, some on one side, some on another, and some set about the bowl of the tree so that the ladder passed through them. At a great height above the ground he came to a wide talan, like the deck of a great ship. On it was built a house, so large that almost it would have served for a hall of men upon the earth. 
He entered behind Haldir and found that he was in a chamber of oval shape, in the midst of which grew the trunk of the great Malone, now tapering toward its crown and yet making still a pillar of wide girth. The chamber was filled with a soft light. Its walls were green and silver and its roof of gold. Many elves were seated there. On two chairs beneath the bowl of the tree and canopied by a living bough there sat side by side Celeborn and Galadriel. They stood up to greet their guests after the manner of the elves, even those who were accounted mighty kings. Very tall they were, and the lady no less tall than the lord, and they were grave and beautiful. They were clad wholly in white, and the hair of the lady was of deep gold, and the hair of Lord Celeborn was of silver, long and bright. But no sign of age was upon them, unless it were in the depth of their eyes, for these were as keen as lances in the starlight, and yet profound, the wells of deep memory. Haldir led Frodo before them, and the Lord welcomed him in his own tongue. The Lady Galadriel said no word, but looked long upon his face. Sit down beside my chair, Frodo of the Shire, said Celeborn. When all have come, we will speak together. Each of the companions he greeted courteously by name as they entered. Welcome, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, he said. It is eight and thirty years of the world outside since you came to this land. And those years lie heavy on you, but the end is near, for ill or good. Here lay aside your burden for a while. Welcome, son of Thranduil. Too seldom do my kindred journey hither from the north. Welcome, Gimli, son of Gloin. It is long indeed since we saw one of Durin's folk in Karas Caledon. But today we have broken our long law. May it be a sign that though the world is now dark, better days are at hand, and that friendship will be renewed between our people. Gimli bowed low. When all the guests were seated before his chair, the Lord looked out at them again. Here are eight, he said. Nine were set out, so said the messages. But maybe there has been some change of counsel that we have not heard. Elrond is far away, and darkness gathers between us, and all this year the shadows have grown longer. Nay, there was no change of counsel, said the Lady Galadriel, speaking for the first time. Her voice was clear and musical, but deeper than a woman's wont. Gandalf the Grey set out with the company but he did not pass the borders of this land. Now tell us where he is, for I much desired to speak with him again. But I cannot see him from afar unless he comes within the fences of Lothlorien. A grey mist is about him, and the ways of his feet and of his mind are hidden from me. Alas, said Aragorn, Gandalf the Grey fell into shadow. He remained in Moria, and did not escape. These are evil tidings, said Celeborn, the most evil that have been spoken here in long years, full of grievous deeds. 
he turned to Haldir. Why has nothing been told to me of this before? he asked in the elven tongue. We have not spoken to Haldir of our deeds or our purpose, said Legolas. At first we were weary, and danger was too close behind, and afterward we almost forgot our grief for a time as we walked in gladness on the fair paths of Lorien. Yet our grief is great, and our loss cannot be mended, said Frodo. Gandalf was our guide, and he led us through Moria, and when our escape seemed beyond hope, he saved us, and he fell. Tell us now the full tale, said Celeborn. Then Aragorn recounted all that had happened upon the pass of Caradras, and in the days that had followed. And he spoke of Balin, and his book, and the fight in the chamber of Mazarbul, and the fire, and the narrow bridge, and the coming of the terror. An evil of the ancient world, it seemed, such as I've never seen before, said Aragorn. It was both shadow and flame, strong and terrible. It was a Balrog of Morgoth, said Legolas, of all elf banes the most deadly, save the one who sits on the White Tower. Indeed, I saw upon the bridge that which haunts our darkest dreams. I saw Durin's bane, said Gimli in a low voice and dread in his eyes. Alas, said Celeborn, we long have feared that under Caradras a terror slept. But had I known that the dwarves had stirred up this evil in Moria again, I would have forbidden you to pass the northern borders, you and all that went with you. If it were possible, one would say that at last Gandalf fell from wisdom to folly, going needlessly into the net of Moria. He would be rash indeed that said that thing, said Galadriel gravely. Needless were none of the deeds of Gandalf in life. Those that followed him knew not his mind, and cannot report his full purpose. But however it may be with the guide, the followers are blameless. Do not repent of your welcome to the dwarf. If our folk have been exiled long and far from Lothlorien, who of the Caladrim, even Caliborn the Wise, would pass nigh and would not wish to look upon their ancient home, although it had become an abode of dragons. Dark is the water of Kelidzaram, and cold are the springs of Kiblnala, and fair were the many pillared halls of Khazad-dûm in elder days, before the fall of mighty kings beneath the stone. She looked upon Gimli, who sat glowering and sad, and she smiled. And the dwarf, hearing the names given in his own ancient tongue, looked up and met her eyes, and it seemed to him that he suddenly looked into the heart of an enemy and saw there love and understanding. Wonder came into his face, and then he smiled in answer. He rose clumsily and bowed in dwarf fashion, saying, Yet more fair is the living land of Lorien, and the Lady Galadriel is above all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. There was a silence. At length, Celeborn spoke again. I did not know that your plight was so evil, he said. 
Let Gimli forget my harsh words. I spoke in the trouble of my heart. I will do what I can to help you, each according to his wish and need, but especially that one of the little folk who bears the burden. Your quest is known to us, said Galadriel, looking at Frodo, but we will not speak of it here more openly. Yet not in vain will it prove, maybe, that you came to this land seeking aid, as Gandalf himself plainly purposed. For the lord of the Galadrim is accounted the wisest of the elves of Middle-earth, and a giver of gifts beyond the power of kings. He has dwelt in the west since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with him years uncounted. For ere the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin, I passed over the mountains, and together, through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. I it was who first summoned the White Council, and if my designs had not gone amiss, it would have been governed by Gandalf the Grey. And then mayhap things would have gone otherwise. But even now there is hope left. I will not give you counsel, saying, do this or do that, for not in doing or contriving nor in choosing between this course and another can I avail, but only in knowing what was and what is, and in part also what shall be. But this I will say to you, your quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains while all the company is true. And with that word she held them in her eyes, and in silence looked searchingly at each of them in turn. None, save Legolas and Aragorn, could endure her glance. Sam quickly blushed and hung his head. At length Lady Galadriel released them from her eyes, and she smiled. Do not let your hearts be troubled, she said. Tonight you shall sleep in peace. And they sighed and felt suddenly weary, as those who have been questioned long and deeply, though no word had been spoken openly. Go now, said Caliborn. You are worn with sorrow and much toil. Even if your quest did not concern us closely, you should have refuge in this city until you were healed and refreshed. Now you shall rest, and we will not speak of your further road for a while. At night the company slept upon the ground, much to the satisfaction of the hobbits. The elves spread for them a pavilion among the trees near the fountain, and in it they laid soft couches. Then, speaking words of peace with fair elvish voices, they left them. For a little while the travelers talked of their night before the treetops, and of their day's journey, and of the lord and lady, for they did not yet have the heart to look further back. "'What did you blush for, Sam?' said Pippin. "'You soon broke down. Anyone would have thought you'd got guilty conscience. I hope it was nothing worse than a wicked plot to steal one of my blankets.' "'I never thought no such thing,' answered Sam, in no mood for a jest. "'If you want to know, I felt as if I hadn't got nothing going on, and I didn't like it. "'She seemed to be looking inside of me and asking me 
what I'd do if she gave me the chance for flying back home to the Shire, to a nice little hole with with a bit of garden of my own. That's funny, said Mary. Almost exactly what I felt myself, only... Well, I don't think I'll say any more, he ended lamely. All of them, it seemed, had fared alike. Each had felt that he was offered a choice between a shadow full of fear that lay ahead and something that he greatly desired. Clear before his mind it lay, and to get it he had only to turn aside from the road and leave the quest and the war against Sauron to others. And it seemed to me, too, said Gimli, that my choice would remain secret and only known to myself. To me, it seemed exceedingly strange, said Boromir. Maybe it was only a test, and she thought to read our thoughts for her own good purpose, but I almost should have said that she was tempting us, and offering what she pretended to have the power to give. It need not be said that I refused to listen. The men of Minas Tirith are true in their word. But what he thought that the lady had offered him, Boromir did not tell. And as for Frodo, he would not speak, though Boromir pressed him with questions. She held your gaze long, Ringbearer, he said. Yes, said Frodo, but whatever came into my mind then I will keep there. Well, have a care, said Boromir. Do not feel too secure of the elvish lady and her purposes. Speak no evil of the Lady Galadriel, said Aragorn sternly. You do not know what you say. There is in her and in this land no evil, unless a man bring it hither himself, then let him beware. But tonight I shall sleep without fear for the first time since I left Rivendell, and may I sleep deep and forget for a time my own grief. I'm weary in body and in heart. He cast himself down upon his couch and fell at once into a long sleep. The others soon did the same, and no sound or dream disturbed their slumber. When they woke, they found that the light of day was brought upon the lawn before the pavilion, and the fountain rose and fell, glittering in the sun. They remained some days in Lothlorien, so far as they could tell or remember. All the while that they dwelt there, the sun shone clear, save for a gentle rain that fell at times, and passed away, leaving all things fresh and clean. The air was cool and soft, as if it were early spring, yet they felt about them the deep and thoughtful quiet of winter. It seemed to them that they did little but eat and drink and rest, and walk among the trees. And it was enough. They had not seen the lord and lady again, and they had little speech with the elven folk, for few of these knew or would use the western tongue. How there had been them farewell, and gone back again to the fences of the north— where great watch was now kept since the tidings of Moria that the company had brought. Legolas was away much among the Galadrim, and after the first night he did not sleep with the other companions, though he returned to eat and talk with them. Often he took Gimli with him when he went abroad in the land, and the others wondered at this change. Now as the companions sat or walked together, they spoke of Gandalf, and all that each had known and seen of him came clear before their minds. As they were healed of their hurt and weariness of body, the grief of their loss grew more keen. 
Often they heard nearby elvish voices singing and knew that they were making songs of lamentation for his fall, for they caught his name among the sweet, sad words that they could not understand. Mithrandir, Mithrandir, sang the elves, O Pilgrim Grey, for so they loved to call him. But if Legolas was with the company, he would not interpret the songs for them, saying that he had not the skill, and that for him the grief was still too near, a matter for tears and not yet for song. It was Frodo who first put something of his sorrow into halting words. He was seldom moved to make song or rhyme. Even in Rivendell he had listened and not sung himself, though his memory was stored with many things that others had made before him. But now as he sat beside the fountain in Lorien and heard about him, the voices of the elves, his thought took shape into a rhyme that seemed fair to him, yet when he tried to repeat it to Sam, only snatches remained, faded as a handful of withered leaves. When evening in the shire was grey, his footsteps on the hill were heard. Before the dawn he went away, on journey long, without a word. From wilderland to western shore, from northern waste to southern hill, through dragon lair and hidden door, and darkling woods he walked at will. With dwarf and hobbit, elves and men, with mortal and immortal folk, with bird on bough and beast in den, in their own secret tongues he spoke. A deadly sword, a healing hand, a back that bent beneath its load, a trumpet voice, a burning brand, a weary pilgrim on the road. A lord of wisdom, throned he sat, swift in anger, quick to laugh, an old man in a battered hat, who leaned upon a thorny staff. He stood upon the bridge alone, and fire and shadow both defied. His staff was broken on the stone. In Khazad Doom his wisdom died. Well, you'll be beating Mr. Bilbo next, said Sam. No, I'm afraid not, said Frodo. But that's the best I can do yet. Well, Mr. Frodo... If you do have another go, I, I hope you'll say something about his fireworks, said Sam. Something like, The finest rockets ever seen. They burst in stars of blue and green. Or after thunder, golden showers, came falling like a rain of flowers. Although that, that doesn't do him justice by a long road. No, I'll leave that to you, Sam. Or perhaps to Bilbo. Well, I can't talk of it any more. I can't bear to think of bringing the news to him. One evening, Frodo and Sam were walking together in the cool twilight. Both of them felt restless again. On Frodo, suddenly the shadow of parting had fallen. He knew somehow that the time was very near when he must leave Lothlorien. What do you think of the elves now, Sam? he said. I asked you the same question once before. Seems a very long time ago, but you've seen more of them since then. Oh, I have indeed, said Sam. And I reckon there's elves and elves. They're all elvish enough, but they're not all the same. Now, these folk aren't wanderers or homeless. And they seem to be a bit nearer to the likes of us. They, they seem to belong here. More even than the hobbits do in the Shire. What are they... Made the land, or the land's made them. It's hard to say, but it ain't my meaning. It's wonderfully quiet here. 
Nothing seems to be going on, and nobody seems to want it to. If there's any magic about it, it's right down deep, where I can't lay my hands on it in a manner of speaking. You can see it and feel it everywhere, said Frodo. Well, said Sam, can't see nobody working it. Not fireworks like poor old Gandalf used to show. I wonder we don't see nothing of the Lord and Lady in all these days. I fancy now that she could do some wonderful things if she had a mind. I would dearly love to see some elf magic, Mr. Frodo. I wouldn't, said Frodo. I'm content. And I don't miss Gandalf's fireworks, but his bushy eyebrows and his quick temper and his voice. You're right, said Sam. And don't think I'm finding fault. I've often wanted to see a bit of magic, like what it tells of in the old tales, but I never heard of a better land than this. It's like being at home and on holiday at the same time, if you understand me. I, I don't want to leave. All the same, I, I'm beginning to feel that we got to get going on. Best get it over with. It's the job that's never started that takes longest to finish, as my old gaffer used to say. And I don't reckon that these folk can do much more to help us, magic or no. It's when we leave this land, we're going to miss Gandalf worse, I'm thinking. I'm afraid that's only too true, Sam, said Frodo. Yet I hope very much that before we leave we shall see the Lady of the Elves again. Even as he spoke, he saw, as if she came in answer to their words, the Lady Galadriel approaching. Tall and white and fair she walked beneath the trees. She spoke no word, but beckoned to them. Turning aside, she led them toward the southern slopes of the hill of Carascaladon, and passing through a high green hedge they came into an enclosed garden. No trees grew there, and it lay open to the sky. The evening star had risen and was shining with white fire above the western woods. Down a long flight of steps the lady went into the deep green hollow, through which ran murmuring the silver stream that issued from the fountain on the hill. At the bottom, upon a low pedestal carved like a branching tree, stood a basin of silver, wide and shallow, and beside it stood a silver ewer. With water from the stream, Galadriel filled the basin to the brim and breathed on it. And when the water was still again, she spoke. Here is the mirror of Galadriel, she said. I have brought you here so that you may look into it, if you will. The air was very still, and the dell was dark, and the elf lady beside him was tall and pale. What shall we look for, and what will we see? asked Frodo, filled with awe. Many things I can command the mirror to reveal, she answered. And to some I can show what they desire to see, but the mirror will also show things unbidden, and those are often stranger and more profitable than things that we wish to behold. What you will see if you leave the mirror free to work I cannot tell, for it shows things that were, and things that are, and things that yet may be. But which is it that he sees? Even the wisest cannot always tell. 
Do you wish to look? Frodo did not answer. And you, she said, turning to Sam, for this is what your folk would call magic, I believe, though I do not understand clearly what they mean, and they seem to use the same words of the deceits of the enemy. But this, if you will, is the magic of Galadriel. Did you not say that you wished to see elf magic? I did, said Sam, trembling a little between fear and curiosity. I'll have a peep, lady, if you're willing. And I don't mind a glimpse of what's going on at home, he said in an aside to Frodo. It seems a terrible long time that I've been away, but there, like as not, I'll only see the stars or something that I won't understand. Like as not, said the lady with a gentle laugh, but come, you shall look and see what you may. Do not touch the water. Sam climbed up on the foot of the pedestal and leaned over the basin. The water looked hard and dark. The stars were reflected on it. There's only stars, as I thought, he said. Then he gave a low gasp, for the stars went out. As if a dark veil had been withdrawn, the mirror grew gray and then clear. There was sun shining, and the branches of trees were waving and tossing in the wind. But before Sam could make up his mind what it was, he saw the light faded. And now he thought he saw Frodo, with a pale face, lying asleep under a great dark cliff. Then he seemed to see himself going along a dim passage and climbing an endless winding stair. It came to him suddenly he was looking urgently for something, but what it was he did not know. Like a dream, the vision shifted and went back, and he saw the trees again. But this time they were not so close, and he could see what was going on. They were not waving in the wind. They were falling, crashing to the ground. Oi! cried Sam in an outraged voice. There's that Ted Sandy man a cutting down trees as he shouldn't. It didn't ought to be felled. It's that avenue behind the mill that shades the road to Bywater. I wish I could get it, Ted. I'd fell him. But now Sam noticed that the old mill had vanished, and a large red brick building was being put up where it had stood. Lots of folks were busily at work. There was a tall red chimney nearby. Black smoke seemed to cloud the surface of the mirror. Here's some devilry at work in the Shire, he said. Elrond knew what he was on about when he wanted to send Mr. Merry back. Then suddenly Sam gave a cry and sprang away. Oh, I can't stay here, he said wildly. Must go home. They've dug up Bagshot Row and there's a poor old gaffer. "'going down the hill with bits of things in a barrow. "'I must go home.' "'You cannot go home alone,' said the lady. "'You did not wish to go home without your master "'before you looked in the mirror, "'and yet you knew that evil things might be happening in the Shire. "'Remember that the mirror shows many things "'and not all have yet come to pass. "'Some never come to be unless those that behold the visions turn aside from their path to prevent them. The mirror is dangerous as a guide of deeds. Sam sat on the ground and put his head in his hands. I wish I'd never come here. I don't want to see no more magic, he said, and fell silent. After a moment he spoke again thickly as if struggling with tears. 
No. I'll go home by the long road. With Mr. Frodo. Or not at all, he said. But I hope I do get back someday. And if what I've seen turns out true, somebody's going to catch it hot. Do you now wish to look, Frodo? said the Lady Galadriel. You did not wish to see elf magic and were content. Do you advise me to look? asked Frodo. No, she said. I do not counsel you one way or the other. I am not a counsellor. You may learn something, and whether what you see shall be fair or evil, it may be profitable, and yet it may not. Seeing is both good and perilous, yet I think, Frodo, that you have the courage and wisdom enough for the venture, or I would not have brought you here. Do as you will. I will look, said Frodo, and he climbed on the pedestal and bent over the dark water. At once the mirror cleared and he saw a twilit land. Mountains loomed dark in the distance against a pale sky. A long gray road wound back out of sight. Far away a figure came slowly down the road, faint and small at first, but growing larger and clearer as it approached. Suddenly Frodo realized that it reminded him of Gandalf. He almost called aloud the wizard's name and then saw that the figure was clothed not in gray but in white, in a white that shone faintly in the dusk, and in his hand there was a white staff. The head was so bowed that he could see no face, and presently the figure turned aside round a bend in the road and went out of the mirror's view. Doubt came into Frodo's mind. Was this a vision of Gandalf in one of his many lonely journeys long ago? Or was it Saruman? The vision now changed. Brief and small, but very vivid, he caught a glimpse of Bilbo walking restlessly about his room. The table was littered with disordered papers. Rain was beating on the windows. And there was a pause, and after it, many swift scenes followed that Frodo in some way knew to be parts of a great history in which he had become involved. The mist cleared, and he saw a sight which he had never seen before, but knew at once. The sea. Darkness fell. The sea rose and raged in a great storm. Then he saw against the sun, sinking blood red into a rack of clouds, the black outline of a tall ship with torn sails riding up out of the west. Then a wide river flowing through a populous city and then a white fortress with seven towers, and then again a ship with black sails, but now it was morning again, and the water rippled with light and a banner bearing the emblem of a white tree shone in the sun. A smoke as of fire and battle arose, and again the sun went down in a burning of fire that faded into a gray mist, and into the mist a small ship passed away, twinkling with lights. It vanished, and Frodo sighed and prepared to draw away. Suddenly, the mirror went altogether dark, as dark as if a hole had opened in the world of sight, and Frodo looked into emptiness. In the black abyss there appeared a single eye that slowly grew, until it filled nearly all the mirror. 
So terrible was it that Frodo stood rooted, unable to cry out or to withdraw his gaze. The eye was rimmed with fire, but was itself glazed, yellow as a cat's, watchful and intent. And the black slit of its pupil opened on a pit, a window into nothing. Then the eye began to rove, searching this way and that, and Frodo knew with certainty and horror that among the many things that it sought, he himself was one. But he also knew that it could not see him. Not yet, not unless he willed it. The ring that hung upon the chain on his neck grew heavy, heavier than a great stone, and his head was dragged downward. The mirror seemed to be growing hot, and curls of steam were rising from the water. He was slipping forward. Do not touch the water, said the Lady Galadriel softly. The vision faded, and Frodo found that he was looking at the cool stars twinkling in the silver basin. He stepped back, shaking all over, and looked at the lady. I know what it was you last saw, she said, for that is also in my mind. Do not be afraid, but do not think that only by singing amid the trees, nor even by the slender arrows of elven bows, is this land of Lothlorien maintained and defended against the enemy. I say to you, Frodo, that even as I speak to you, I perceive the Dark Lord and know his mind, or all of his mind that concerns the elves, and he gropes ever to see me and my thought, but still the door is closed. She lifted up her white arms and spread out her hands toward the east in a gesture of rejection and denial. Yarendil, the evening star, most beloved of the elves, shone clear above. So bright was it that the figure of the elven lady cast a dim shadow on the ground. Its rays glanced upon a ring about her finger. It glittered like polished gold overlaid with silver light, and a white stone in it twinkled, as if the evan star had come down to rest upon her hand. Frodo gazed at the ring with awe, for suddenly it seemed to him that he understood. Yes, she said, divining his thought. It is not permitted to speak of it, and Elrond could not do so. But it cannot be hidden from the ring-bearer, the one who has seen the eye. Verily it is in the land of Lorien, upon the finger of Galadriel, that one of the three remains. This is Nenya, the ring of adamant, and I am its keeper. He suspects, but he does not know, not yet. Do you not see now, wherefore your coming to us is as footstep of doom? For if you fail, then we are laid bare to the enemy. Yet if you succeed, then our power is diminished, and Lothlorien will fade, and the tides of time will sweep it away. We must depart into the west, or dwindle to a rustic folk of dell and cave, slowly to forget and to be forgotten. Frodo bent his head. And what do you wish? He said at last. That what should be 
shall be, she answered. The love of the elves for their land and their works is deeper than the depths of the sea, and their regret is undying and cannot ever wholly be assuaged. Yet they will cast away all rather than submit to Sauron, for they know him now. For the fate of Lothlorien, you are not answerable, but only for the doing of your own task. Yet I could wish, were it of any avail, that the one ring had never been wrought, or had remained forever lost. You are wise and fearless and fair, Lady Galadriel, said Frodo. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. It's too great a matter for me. Galadriel laughed with a sudden clear laugh. Wise the Lady Galadriel may be, she said. Yet here she has met her match in courtesy. Gently are you revenged for my testing of your heart at our first meeting. You begin to see with a keen eye. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years I had pondered what I might do should the great ring come into my hands, and behold, it was brought within my grasp. The evil that was devised long ago works in many ways, whether Sauron himself stands or falls. Would not that have been a noble deed to set to the credit of his ring if I had taken it by force or fear from my guests? And now at last it comes. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the Dark Lord you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and the lightning, greater than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. She lifted her hand, and from it the ring that she wore there issued a great light that illuminated her alone and left all else dark. She stood before Frodo, seeming now tall beyond measurement, and beautiful beyond enduring, terrible and worshipful. Then she let her hand fall, and the light faded, and suddenly she laughed again, and lo, she was shrunken, a slender elf woman clad in simple white whose gentle voice was soft and sad. I passed the test, she said. I will diminish and go into the west and remain Galadriel. They stood for a long while in silence. At length the lady spoke again. Let us return, she said. In the morning you must depart, for now we have chosen, and the tides of fate are flowing. I would ask one thing before we go, said Frodo. A thing which I have often meant to ask Gandalf in Rivendell. I am permitted to wear the one ring. Why cannot I see the others and know the thoughts of those that wear them? You have not tried, she said. 
Only thrice have you set the ring upon your finger since you knew what you possessed. Do not try. It will destroy you. Did Gandalf not tell you that the rings give power according to the measure of each possessor? Before you could use that power, you would need to become far stronger and to train your will to the domination of others. Yet even so, as ring-bearer and as one that has borne it upon your finger and seen that which is hidden, your mind is grown keener. You have perceived my thought more clearly than many that are accounted wise. You saw the eye of him that holds the seven and the nine, and did you not see and recognize the ring on my finger? Did you see my ring? She asked, turning again to Sam. No, lady, he answered. To tell you the truth, though you wondered what you were talking about, I saw a star through your fingers, but if you'll pardon my speaking out, I think my master was right. I wish you'd take the ring. He'd put things to rights. He'd stop him digging up the gaffer and turning him adrift. You make some folk pay for their dirty work. I would, she said. That is how it would begin. But it would not stop with that. Alas, we will not speak more of it. Let us go. scared some dags <laughs> well folks i hope you're enjoying thus far uh chapter seven moving on into chapter eight after a quick break here uh chapter eight of course farewell to lorian we're leaving we're leaving that's it man i've been sneezing i've been like oh my nose has been itching like crazy today oh yay yeah okay all right we're good all is well <laughs> oh my good gracious folks thank you a ton for joining me here my name is sam this is sidecar stories for anyone who does not know and today is thursday which means flying sidecar a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love right now lord of the rings part two of the fellowship of the ring Man, that one is whatever that one the, the drawer on that is a little sticky. It's hard to pull that one out for some reason. So, uh, folks, I'm gonna be gone for about five minutes. You will see me again very soon. Gonna go refill my water, etc. etc. I will see you in about five. But first, a little chatter break question. Chatter break question is What do we think was the intent here? And I'm asking you both, um, uh, from sort of Galadriel's perspective, but also from Tolkien's perspective, what was it that we just witnessed here between between Galadriel and Frodo, especially? Sam was involved, certainly, but a lot of it took place between Galadriel and Frodo. What did we just watch? What just happened? All right, I'll see y'all in five. Bye-bye. And we... 
We are back, my good folks. Hello, hello. How do you do? So, we've got our chatter break question on the table. Let's talk about this a bit. Then I'm going to do a spot of review. And then we're going to head on into our next chapter. Our second and final chapter for the evening. Everybody, thank you so much for being here. Now, Proteus Spade has some stuff to say about this. Chatterbrick question, of course, being what did we just read, essentially? What did we just witness between Frodo and Galadriel? What was the importance of that moment, both um, for Galadriel as a character and for... Oh, Cass is home. I don't know why I wasn't expecting that until a lot later. She told me, but I don't know why. Uh, don't know why I was expecting it to be different. Um... Uh, both for the character of Galadriel, both for her as a person and also for Tolkien. What was the importance of this moment? Um, Purdy Spade says, Boy, this vision is much more satisfying when you're real comfortable with the series. If we're going Doyleist, this exchange between Frodo and Galadriel is big-time foreshadowing, giving a vision of all these elements from things that may or may not happen, and may or may not happen the way that we think from how they're presented, give the audience a lot to keep an eye out for, gives the author some direction or misdirection to use, and also the sheer corruptive nature of the ring has finally been clearly shown instead of told. We keep getting told, told, told what the ring can do, and we're certainly given every reason to believe it. But here we're shown. We're given the most incorruptible character Tolkien has in his arsenal. An elf, a really wise one, already a ring bearer. And she's so, so very tempted. She manages to not go after it, but it's so clearly a very close thing. She can't even bring herself to say plainly that she rejects the gift. She just says she'll diminish, go into the West, and remain Galadriel. It also illustrates how much of a burden this is on Frodo, how, given the opportunity, one he thinks is safe with his ideal candidate, maybe he'd give it up. Of course, I also think that she has some very fey vibes, and it may be that she uh, that he's not acting entirely of normal free will. So, uh, Proteus Spade has a lot there. There's a lot in that uh, in that response, and it's an excellent one. Um, this this response is, is fantastic. So first of all, uh, let's let's get that last sort of like detail out of the way. Yeah, there is a sort of I don't know. There's an almost like primordial kind of passive effect um, on people that interact with elves, right? Sam has certainly been caught up in it. Uh, good old Samwise has uh, sort of. I don't know, every time he encounters elves, he just wants to, like, I just want to interact with them. I just want to know them better. Just want to see how it all goes. Um, Grim, have a good one. We'll see you later. Uh, but uh, for Frodo, yes, indeed, he may also sort of be under this, this influence of kind of the ambient magic. Not that, not that Galadriel is sort of pushing him toward it actively, because, frankly, I think if she did he would be done immediately. Like, if she if she took it or demanded it, we get the sense that, I mean, he's on her home turf. Even with the allies that he currently has, even if Gandalf were here, I don't know that anyone could resist Galadriel if she were really trying to take it. But she is very tempted, and uh, I think there's there's a lot to be said in that. I, I think this idea of showing it rather than telling it, I think this is a very good observation. We're watching as this character is not simply 
not simply interested in the ring, right? Not simply telling us about like, ooh, that ring, it's dangerous because we've had plenty of that. We've had that from Elrond. We've had it from Gandalf. We, you know, we, we, we keep hearing about like, no, here's, I don't know, even if I took it, things would sort of go bad. But now with the ability to sort of show these visions of things which may or may not come to pass in the ways in which we expect them, Frodo sees, you know, partially information, data about the trip at hand, things that may or may not come to pass. And then, frankly, the bulk of this in my experience, or at least I think what's really going to sit with Frodo, is the vision of what would happen if he left the ring here. Instead of going on his journey and encountering the possibilities of those other visions, he cuts them out entirely and instead hands this ring over to Galadriel, who... I mean, to Frodo's credit, is an excellent candidate, right? We're not talking about like, oh man, Frodo's just weak and looking to pawn this off to the first possible opportunity. Um, there, There is incredible pressure upon Frodo, which we'll talk about in just a second, but he makes a very wise decision here. Unless, of course, you know, there is some like secret beyond even the power of Gandalf to understand sort of plot. Um... <laughs> <laughs> where, I don't know, Morgoth or what have you, uh, you know, the, the gods of this world have have tricked the world and Galadriel is not what she seems. Barring one of those things, Frodo's judgment is good. She has power to hold the ring, yes, but wisdom as well. She would be a good option. Except, except for what the ring does. The ring is not just a weapon. It's not just a, uh, a gun or a magic wand. It has a corrupting effect. And the more power and cunning at the disposal of the person who takes the ring, the more that ring can wreak havoc in the world. And it is an interesting note, one that I have not caught before, Proteus Spade, uh, to say that in this great temptation, she doesn't outright reject it. She doesn't outright say, I won't take it. Now, of course, part of this is just elves being elves, baby. But yes, she does indeed say, I've passed the test. There, There is, I think, a ring of finality there um, that I would credit them with. But I passed the test. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. And for those of you who remember, of course, going into the West, uh, West is capitalized here. It's not just, uh, we have our heading. We sell, we follow the setting sun. No, the going West is to essentially die of your own volition. It's to, it's to take a rocket ship to heaven. If we are to use the Uberdale <laughs> kind of, kind of, uh, lore, it's to take a rocket ship to heaven. Um, but she's going to go west and remain Galadriel rather than becoming the new Sauron, rather than, than sort of taking over. Um, because unlike, kind of unlike Frodo here, um, she probably could put, uh, put Sauron down. If she had the ring, she's got, she would have two of them. She could probably put Sauron down and then uh, she would 
maybe start to leak into uh, putting some of the less... <laughs> uh, 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 so some of the less um, sort of vile offenders of the world down. And then perhaps in her cleverness she would understand uh, much in the same way that people kind of fear AI will start to understand like, well, the best way to prevent violence is to ensure that no human being has the agency to do anything. Uh, and then there will be no violence because humans can't really do anything. And then the AI starts to wonder if, well, maybe the best way to handle this would if would be if there were just no people then no violence could occur so even even the cleverness uh, which I, i'm trying to keep distinct from wisdom but even this cleverness could be plied as a as a weapon by this weapon by the ring so this is this is the conundrum this is why it it must remain with frodo and remain in the hands of someone who is not powerful enough to use it not powerful enough to be a juicing a juicing, a juicy, tempting tidbit for this ring to pursue. Instead, Frodo is simply a smaller vessel uh, that the ring simply wants to try to escape from. Uh, and then also uh, a smaller vessel that has just enough willpower to hold on to the thing and not cast it off, not use it a bunch, etc., etc., There we have it, folks. A spot of review. Frodo and company have made it through the mountains. All but one. Gandalf has passed, coming through the mines of Moria. And as they arrive here in Lothlorien, uh, amidst the sort of, like, uh, easternmost major kingdom of the elves. Uh, I know there are the, the elves of Mirkwood as well, but I'm kind of... They're, they're kind of lateral to each other, frankly. Um, they're very close to each other. Um... But this this sort of like last major stronghold, because um, I don't believe Thranduil has uh, the final of the three Elven rings. I think who who carries all three Elven rings? Uh, I think it's it's Elrond, Galadriel, and then who else? I'm trying to remember. Um, but we're here, uh, and we have now made our way uh, essentially to the end of our stay. No longer is the party going to just sit here and chill out with the elves. They must be on their way. But they've got some help now. Not a new leader, except one sort of promoted from within. Galadriel isn't going to be accompanying them in this, like perhaps they might wish. I certainly would. <laughs> Seeing how powerful she is, I would certainly want her around. But. We're headed out now. So, load up the boats. Time to continue our journey toward Mordor. Chapter 8 Farewell to Lorien That night the company was again summoned to the chamber of Caliborn, 
and there the lord and lady greeted them with fair words. At length, Celeborn spoke of their departure. Now is the time, he said, when those who wish to continue their quest must harden their hearts and leave this land. Those who no longer wish to go forward may remain here for a while. But whether they stay or go, none can be sure of peace. For now we come to the edge of doom. Here those who wish may await the oncoming hour till either the ways of the world lie open again, or we summon them to the last need of Lorien. Then they may return to their own lands, or else go to the long home of those that fall in battle. There was a silence. They all resolved to go forward, said Galadriel, looking in their eyes. As for me, said Boromir, my way home lies onward and not back. It is true, said Celeborn, but is all this company going with you to Minas Tirith? We have not yet decided our course, said Aragorn. Beyond Lothlorien I do not know what Gandalf intended to do. Indeed, I do not think that even he had any clear purpose. Maybe not, said Celeborn, yet when you leave this land you can no longer forget the great river. As some of you well know, it cannot be crossed by travellers with baggage between Lorien and Gondor, save by boat. And are not the bridges of Osgiliath broken down, and are the landings held now by the enemy? On which side will you journey? The way to Minas Tirith lies upon this side, upon the west, but the straight road the quest lies east of the river, upon the darker shore. Which shore will you now take? If my advice is heeded, it will be to the western shore, and that way to Minas Tirith, answered Boromir. But I am not the leader of the company. The others said nothing, and Aragorn looked doubtful and troubled. I see that you do not yet know what to do, said Celeborn. It is not my part to choose for you, but I will help you as I may. There are some among you who can handle boats. Legolas, whose folk know the swift forest river, and Boromir of Gondor, and Aragorn the Traveller. And one hobbit, cried Merry. Not all of us look on boats like wild horses. My people live by the banks of the Brandywine. That is well, said Celeborn. And I will furnish your company with boats. They must be small and light, for if you are to get far by water, there are places where you will be forced to carry them. You will come to the rapids of Sarngebir, and maybe at last to the falls of Roros, where the river thunders down from Nenithoil. And there are other perils. Boats may make your journey less toilsome for a while, yet they will not give you counsel. In the end, you must leave them and the river, and turn west or east. Aragorn thanked Celeborn many times. The gift of boats comforted him much, not least because there would now be no need to decide his course for some days. The others, too, looked more hopeful. Whatever perils lay ahead, 
It seemed better to float down the broad tide of undoing to meet them than to plod forward with bent backs. Only Sam was doubtful. He, at any rate, still thought boats were as bad as wild horses, or worse, and not all the dangers that he had survived made him think any better of them. All shall be prepared for you, and await you at the haven before noon tomorrow, said Celeborn. I will send my people to you in the morning to help you make ready for the journey. Now we wish you all a fair night and untroubled sleep. Good night, my friends, said Galadriel. Sleep in peace. Do not trouble your hearts over much with the thought of the road tonight. Maybe the paths that each of you shall tread are already laid before your feet, though you do not see them. Good night. The company now took their leave and returned to their pavilion. Legolas went with them, for this was to be their last night in Lothlorien, and in spite of the words of Galadriel, they wished to take counsel together. For a long time, they debated what they should do, and how it would be best to attempt the fulfilling of their purpose with the ring, but they came to no decision. It was plain that most of them desired to go first to Minas Tirith, and then to escape at least for a while from the terror of the enemy. They would have been willing to follow a leader over the river and into the shadow of Mordor, but Frodo spoke no word, and Aragorn was still divided in his mind. His own plan, while Gandalf remained with them, had been to go with Boromir and with his sword to help deliver Gondor, for he believed that the message of the dreams was a summons, and that the hour had come at last when the heir of Elendil should come forth and strive with Sauron for the mastery. But in Moria the burden of Gandalf had been laid on him, and he knew he could not now forsake the ring if Frodo refused in the end to go with Boromir. And yet, what help could he or any of the company give to Frodo, save to walk blindly with him into the darkness? "'I shall go to Minas Tirith alone, if need be, for it is my duty,' said Boromir. And after that he stayed silent for a while sitting with his eyes fixed on Frodo, as if trying to read the halfling's thoughts. At length he spoke again, softly, as if he was debating with himself. "'If you wish only to destroy the ring,' he said, "'there is little use in war and weapons, and the men of Minas Tirith cannot help. But if you wish to destroy the armed might of the Dark Lord, it is folly to go without force into his domain.' and fully to throw away. He paused suddenly as if he had become aware that he was speaking his thoughts aloud. It will be folly to throw our lives away, I mean, he ended. It's a choice between defending a strong place and walking openly into the arms of death. At least that's how I see it. Frodo caught something new and strange in Boromir's glance, and he looked hard at him. Plainly, Boromir's thought was different from his final words. It would be folly to throw away... What? The Ring of Power? He had said something like this in the Council, but then he had accepted the correction of Elrond. Frodo looked at Aragorn, but he seemed deep in his own thought and made no sign that he had heeded Boromir's words. And so their debate ended. Merry and Pippin were already asleep, and Sam was nodding. The night was growing old. In the morning, as they were beginning to pack their slender goods, elves, 
that could speak their tongue came to them and brought them many gifts of food and clothing for the journey. The food was mostly in the form of very thin cakes made of a meal that was baked in a light brown on the outside, and inside was the color of cream. Gimli took up one of the cakes and looked at it with a doubtful eye. Crumb, he said under his breath, as he broke off a crisp corner and nibbled at it. His expression quickly changed, and he ate the rest of the cake with relish. No more, no more, cried the elves, laughing. You've eaten enough already for a long day's march. I thought it was only a kind of cram, such as the dalemen make for journeys in the wild, said the dwarf. So it is, they answered. But we call it lambas, or whey bread, and it's more strengthening than any food made by men, and more pleasant than cram by all accounts. Indeed it is, said Gimli. Why, it's better than the honey cakes of the Bjordlings, and that's great praise, for the Bjordlings are the best bakers that I know of, but they're none too willing to deal out their cakes to travellers in these days. You are kindly hosts. All the same, we bid you to spare the food, they said. Eat little at a time, and only at need. For these things are given to serve you when all else fails. The cakes will keep sweet for many days, if they're unbroken and left in their leaf wrappings, as we've brought them. One will keep a traveller on his feet for a day of long labour, even if he be one of the tall men of Minas Tirith. The elves next unwrapped and gave to each of the company the clothes they had brought. For each they had provided a hood and cloak, made according to his size, of the light but warm silken stuff that the Galadrim wove. It was hard to say what color they were. Gray with the hue of twilight under the trees they seemed to be, and yet if they were moved or set in another light, they were green as shadowed leaves or brown as fallow fields by night, dusk silver as water under the stars. Each cloak was fastened about their necks with a brooch like a green leaf veined with silver. Are these magic cloaks? asked Pippin, looking at them with wonder. I do not know what you mean by that, answered the leader of the elves. They are fair garments, and the web is good, for it was made in this land. They are elvish robes, certainly, if that's what you mean. Leaf and branch, water and stone. They have the hue and beauty of all these things under the twilight of Lorien that we love, for we put the thought of all that we love into all that we make. Yet they are garments, not armor. They will not turn shaft or blade. But they should serve you well. They are light to wear and warm enough or cool enough at need. And you will find them a great aid in keeping out of sight of unfriendly eyes, whether you walk among stone or trees. You are indeed high in the favor of the lady, for she herself and her maidens wove this stuff. Never before have we clad strangers in the garb of our own people. After their morning meal, the company said farewell to the lawn by the fountain. Their hearts were heavy, for it was a fair place, and it had become home to them, though they could not count the days and nights that had passed here. As they stood for a moment, looking at the white water in the sunlight, Haldir came walking toward them over the green grass of the glade. Frodo greeted him with delight. "'I've returned from the northern fences,' said the elf, "'and I am now sent to be your guide again. "'The Dimril Dale is full of vapour and clouds of smoke, 
The mountains are troubled. There are noises in the deeps of the earth. But if any of you had thought of returning northward to your homes, you would not have been able to pass that way. Come, your path now goes south. As they walked through Carascalaton, the green ways were empty, but in the trees many voices were murmuring and singing. They themselves went silently. At last Haldir led them down the southward slope of the hill, and they came again to the great gate hung with lamps and to the white bridge, and so they passed out and left the city of the elves. Then they turned away from the paved road and took a path that went off into a steep thicket of malorn trees, and passed on winding through rolling woodlands of silver shadow, leading them ever down, southwards and eastwards, toward the shores of the river. They had gone some ten miles, and noon was at hand when they came upon a high green wall. Passing through an opening, they came suddenly out of the trees. Before them lay a long lawn of shining grass, studded with the golden Eleanor that glinted in the sun. The lawn ran out into a narrow tongue between bright margins. On the right and west, the silver load flowed glittering. On the left and east, the great river rolled its broad waters deep and dark. On the further shores, the woodlands still marched on southward, as far as the eye could see. But all the banks were bleak and bare. No Malorn lifted its golden-hung boughs beyond the land of Lorien. On the banks of the Silver Lode, at some distance up from the meeting of the streams, there was a height of white stones and white wood. By it were moored many boats and barges. Some were brightly painted and shone with silver and gold and green, but most were either white or grey. Three small grey boats had been ready-made for the travellers, and in these the elves stowed their goods. And they added also coils of rope, three to each boat. Slender they looked, but strong. Silken to the touch, gray of hue like the elven cloaks. What are these? asked Sam, holding one that lay upon the green sword. Ropes, indeed, answered an elf from the boats. Never travel without a rope, and one that is strong and good in light. Such are these. They might be a help in many needs. Don't gotta tell me that, said Sam. I came without any, and I've been worried ever since. But I was wondering what these are made of. Knowing a bit about rope-making, it's in the family, as you might say. They're made of hitline, said the elf. But there is no time now to instruct you in the art of their making. Had we known that this craft delighted you, we could have taught you much. But now, alas, unless you should come at some time hither, you must be content with our gift. May it serve you well. Come, said Haldir, all is ready for you now. Enter the boats, but take care at first. Heed the words, said the other elves. These boats are light-built and they are crafty and unlike the boats of other folk. They will not sink, laid them as you will, but they are wayward if mishandled. It would be wise if you accustomed yourselves to stepping in and out, here where there is a landing place, before you set off downstream. The company was arranged in this way. Aragorn, Frodo, and Sam were in one boat, Boromir, Merry, and Pippin in another, and in the third were Legolas and Gimli, who had now become fast friends. In this last boat most of the goods and packs were stowed, 
The boats were moved and steered with short-handled paddles that had broad leaf-shaped blades. When all was ready, Aragorn led them on a trial up the Silverlode. The current was swift, and they went forward slowly. Sam sat in the bows, clutching the sides and looking back wistfully to the shore. The sunlight glittered on the water, dazzling his eyes. As they passed beyond the green field of the tongue, the trees drew down to the river's bank. Here and there, golden leaves tossed and floated on the rippling stream. The air was very bright and still, and there was a silence, except for the high, distant song of larks. They turned a sharp bend in the river, and there, sailing proudly down the stream toward them, they saw a swan of great size. The river rippled on either side of the white breast beneath its curving neck. Its beak shone like burnished gold, and its eyes glinted like jet set in yellow stones. Its huge white wings were lifted. A music came down the river as it drew nearer, and suddenly they perceived it was a ship, wrought and carved with elven skill in the likeness of a bird. Two elves, clad in white, steered with black paddles. In the midst of the vessel sat Celeborn, and behind him stood Galadriel, tall and white, a circlet of golden flowers was in her hair. Sad and sweet, was the sound of her voice in the cool, clear air. I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Of wind I sang, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. Beyond the sun, beyond the moon, the foam was on the sea, and by the strand of Ilmarin there grew a golden tree. Beneath the stars of ever eve, in Eldemar it shone, in Eldemar beside the walls of Elvin Tyrion. There long the golden leaves have grown upon the branching years, while here beyond the sundering seas now fall the Elven tears. O Lorien, the winter comes, and bare and leafless day, the leaves are falling in the stream and river flows away. O Lorien, too long I have dwelt upon this hither shore, and in a fading crown have twined the golden Eleanor. But if of ships I now should sing, what ship would come to me? What ship would bear me ever back across so wide a sea? Aragorn stayed his boat as the swan ship drew alongside. The lady ended her song and greeted them. We have come to bid our last farewell, she said, and to speed you with blessings from our land. Though you have been guests, said Celeborn, you have not yet eaten with us, and we bid you, therefore, to a parting feast, here between the flowing rivers that would bear you far from Lorien. The swan passed on slowly to the hive, and they turned as their boats and they turned in their boat to follow it. Here, in the last end of Egladil, upon the green grass, the parting feast was held. But Frodo ate and drank little, heeding only the beauty of the lady and her voice. She seemed no longer perilous or terrible, nor filled with hidden power. Already she seemed to him, as by men of later days elves still at times are seen, present and yet remote, a living vision of that which has already been left far behind, by the flowing streams of time. 
After they had eaten and drunk, sitting upon the grass, Celeborn spoke to them again of their journey. And lifting his hand, he pointed south to the woods beyond the tongue. As you go down the river, he said, you will find that the trees will fail, and you will come to a barren country. There the rivers flow in stony vales amid high moors until at last, after many leagues, it comes to the tall islands of the Tindrock, that we call Tolbrandir. There it casts its arms about the steep shores of the isle, and falls then with a great noise and smoke over the cataracts of Raros, down into the Nindalf, the wet wang as it is called in your tongue. It is a wide region of sluggish fen where the streams become torturous and much divided. There the Entwash flows in by many mouths from the forest of Fangorn in the west. About that stream, on this side of the great river, lies Rohan. On the further side are the bleak hills of Iminmuil. The wind blows from the east there, for they look out over the dead marshes and the Noman lands to Sirathongor and the black gates of Mordor. Boromir and any that go with him seeking Minas Tirith would do well to leave the great river above Raros and cross the Antwash before it finds the marshes. Yet they should not go too far upstream nor risk being entangled in the forest of Fangorn. That is a strange land and is now little known. But Boromir and Aragorn doubtless do not need this warning. Indeed, we have heard of Fangorn in Minas Tirith said Boromir. But what I've heard seems to me the most part old wise tales, as we tell to our children. All that lies north of Rowan is now so far away that fancy can wander freely there. Of old Fangorn lay upon the borders of our realm, but it's now many lives of many men since any of us have visited, to prove or disprove the legends that have come down from distant years. I have myself been at whiles in Rohan, but I've never crossed it northward. When I was sent out as a messenger, I passed through the gap by the skirt of the White Mountains and crossed the Eisen on the Grey Flood into Northland. A long and wearisome journey, four hundred leagues, I reckoned it, and it took me many months, for I lost my horse at Tharbad and at the fording of the Grey Flood. After that journey and the road that I've trodden along with this company, I do not much doubt that I shall find a way through Rohan and Fang on too, if need be. And I shall say no more, said Caliborn, but do not despise the lore that comes down from distant years, for oft it may chance that old wives keep in memory word of things that were once needful for the wise to know. Now Galadriel rose from the grass, and taking a cup from one of her maidens, she filled it with white mead and gave it to Celeborn. Now it is time to drink the cup of farewell, she said. Drink, Lord of the Galadrim, and let not your heart be sad, though night must follow noon, and already our evening draweth nigh. Then she brought the cup to each of the company, and bade them drink and farewell. But when they had drunk, she commanded them to sit again on the grass, and chairs were set about for her and Celeborn. Her maidens stood silent about her, and a while she looked upon her guests. At last, 
as she spoke again. We are drunk the cup of parting, she said, and the shadows fall between us. But before you go, I have brought in my ship gifts, which the Lord and Lady of the Galadrim offer you now in memory of Lothlorien. Then she called to each in turn. Here's the gift of Celeborn and Galadriel to the leader of your company, she said to Aragorn, and gave him a sheath that had been made to fit his sword. It was overlaid with a tracery of flowers and leaves wrought of silver and gold, and on it were set in elven runes formed of many gems the name Anduril, and the lineage of the sword. The blade that is drawn from this sheath shall not be stained or broken, even in defeat, she said. But is there aught else that you desire of me at our parting? For darkness will flow between us, and it may be that we shall not meet again, unless it be far hence upon a road that has no returning. And Aragorn answered, Lady, you know all my desire, and long held in keeping the only treasure that I seek. Yet it is not yours to give me, even if you would, and only through darkness shall I come to it. Yet maybe this will lighten your heart, said Galadriel, for it was left in my care to be given to you, should you pass through this land. And she lifted from her lap a great stone of a clear green, set in a silver brooch that was wrought in the likeness of an eagle with outstretched wings. And as she held it up, the gem flashed like the sun shining through the leaves of spring. This stone I gave to Celebrian, my daughter, and she to hers, and now it comes to you as a token of hope. In this hour, take the name that was foretold for you, Edesar, the elf stone of the house of Elendil. Then Aragorn took the stone and pinned the brooch upon his breast, and those who saw him wondered, for they had not marked before how tall and kingly he stood, and it seemed to them that many years of toil had fallen from his shoulders. For each of the gifts that you've given me, I thank you, he said, O Lady of Lorien, of whom was sprung Calibrian and Arwen Evanstar. What praise could I say more? The lady bowed her head, and she turned then to give Boromir a belt of gold, and to Merry and Pippin she gave small silver belts, each with a clasp wrought like a golden flower. To Legolas she gave a bow, such as the Galadrim used, longer and stouter than the bows of Mirkwood, and strung with a string of elf hair. With it went a quiver of arrows. For you, little gardener and lover of trees, she said to Sam, I have only a small gift. She put into his hands a little box of plain gray wood, unadorned save for a single silver rune upon the lid. Here is set G for Galandriel, she said, but also it may stand for garden in your tongue. In this box there is earth for my orchard, and such blessing as Galadriel has still to bestow upon it. It will not keep you on your road, nor defend you against any peril, but if you keep it and see your home again at last, then perhaps it may reward you. 
though he should find all barren and laid waste, there will be few gardens in Middle-earth that will bloom like your garden, if you sprinkle this earth there. Then you may remember Galadriel, and catch a glimpse far off of Lorien, that you've seen only in our winter, for our spring and our summer are gone by, and they will never again be seen on earth, save in memory. Sam went red to the ears and muttered something inaudible as he clutched the box and bowed as well as he could. "'And what gift would a dwarf ask of the elves?' said Galadriel, turning to Gimli. "'None, lady,' answered Gimli. "'It is enough for me to have seen the lady of the Galadrim, and to have heard her gentle words.' "'Hear all ye elves,' she cried to those about her. "'Yet none say again that dwarves are grasping and ungracious. "'Yet surely, Gimli, son of Gloin, "'you desire something that I could give. "'Name it, I bid you. "'You shall not be the only guest without a gift.' "'There is nothing, Lady Galadriel,' said Gimli, "'bowing low and stammering. "'Nothing unless... It may be, unless it may be permitted to ask, to, to name a single strand of your hair, which surpasses the gold of the earth as the stars surpass the gems of the mine. I do not ask for such a gift, but you commanded me to name my desire. The elves stirred and murmured with astonishment, and Celeborn gazed at the dwarf in wonder, but the lady smiled. It is said that the skill of the dwarves is in their hands rather than in their tongues, she said. Yet that is not true of Gimli, for none have ever made such a request so bold and yet so courteous. And how shall I refuse, since I commanded him to speak? But tell me, what would you do with such a gift? Treasure it, lady, he answered. In memory of your words to me at our first meeting, and if I ever return to the smithies of my home, it shall be set in imperishable crystal to be an heirloom of my house, and a pledge of goodwill between the mountain and the wood until the end of days. Then the lady unbraided one of her long tresses and cut off three golden hairs and laid them upon Gimli's hand. These words shall go with the gift, she said. I do not foretell, for all foretelling is now vain. On the one hand lies darkness, and on the other only hope. But if hope should not fail, then I say to you, Gimli, son of Gloin, that your hands shall flow with gold, and yet over you gold shall have no dominion. And you, ring-bearer, she said, turning to Frodo, I have come to you last, or not last, in my thoughts. For you I have prepared this. She held up a small crystal file. It glittered as she moved it, and rays of light sprang from her hand. In this file, she said, is caught the light of Erendil's star, set amid the waters of my fountain. It will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in dark places, when all other lights go out. 
remember Galadriel and her mirror. Frodo took the file, and for a moment as it shone between them he saw her again standing like a queen, great and beautiful, but no longer terrible. He bowed but found no words to say. Now the lady arose, and Celeborn led them back to the hive. A yellow noon lay upon the green land of the tongue, and the water glittered with silver. All at last was made ready. The company took their places in the boats as before. Crying farewell, the elves of Lorien with long gray poles thrust them out into the flowing stream, and the rippling waters bore them slowly away. The travelers sat still without moving or speaking. On the green bank, near to the very point of the tongue, the Lady Galadriel stood alone and silent. As they passed her, they turned, and their eyes watched her slowly floating away from them. For so it seemed to them, Lorien was slipping backward, like a bright ship masted with enchanted trees, sailing on to forgotten shores, while they sat helpless upon a margin of the gray and leafless world. Even as they gazed, the silver load passed out into the currents of the great river, and their boats turned and began to speed southward. Soon the white form of the lady was small and distant. She shone like a window of glass upon a far hill in the westering sun, or as a remote lake seen from a mountain, a crystal fallen in the lap of the land. Then it seemed to Frodo that she lifted her arms in a final farewell, and far but Piercing clear on the following wind came the sound of her voice, singing. But now she sang in the ancient tongue of the elves beyond the sea, and he did not understand the words. Fair was the music, but it did not comfort him. Ah, like gold falls the leaves in the wind, long years numberless as the wings of trees, the years have passed like swift draughts of the sweet mead in lofty halls beyond the west, beneath the blue vaults of Varda, wherein the stars tremble in the song of her voice, holy and queenly. Who now shall refill the cup for me? For now, the kindler, Varda, the queen of the stars from Mount Everwhite, has uplifted her hands like clouds and all paths are drowned deep in shadow, and out of a great country darkness lies on the foaming waves between us, and mist covers the jewels of Caraxeria forever. Now lost, lost to those from the east is Valimar. Farewell. Maybe thou shalt find Valimar, maybe even thou shalt find it. Farewell. Varda is the name of that lady whom the elves in these lands of exile name Elbereth. Suddenly the river swept round a bend, and in the banks on either side the light of the Lorien was hidden. To that fair land Frodo never came again. The travelers now turned their faces to the journey. The sun was before them, and their eyes were dazzled, for all were filled with tears. Gimli wept openly. I have looked last upon that which was fairest, he said to Legolas, his companion. Henceforth I will call nothing fair, unless it be her gift. 
He put his hand to his breast. Tell me, Legolas, why did I come on this quest? Little did I know where the chief peril lay. Truly, Elrond spoke, saying that we could not foresee what we might meet upon our road. Torment in the dark was the danger that I feared, and it did not hold me back. But I would not have come had I known the danger of light and joy. Now I've taken my worst wound in this parting, even if I were to go this night straight to the Dark Lord. Alas, for Gimli, son of Gloin. Nay, said Legolas, alas for us all, and for all that walked the world in these after days. For such is the way of it, to find and lose as it seems to those whose boat is on the running stream. But I count you blessed, Gimli, son of Gloin, for your loss you suffer of your own free will, and you might have chosen otherwise. But you have not forsaken your companions, and the least reward that you shall have is that the memory of Lothlorien shall remain ever clear and unstained in your heart, and shall neither fade nor grow stale. Maybe, said Gimli, and I thank you for your words. True words, doubtless, yet all such comfort is cold. Memory is not what the heart desires, it is only a mirror, be it clear as Kelitharam. Or so says the heart of Gimli the dwarf. Elves may see things otherwise. Indeed, I have heard for them memory is more like to the waking world than to a dream. Not so for dwarves. But let us talk no more of it. Look to the boat. She's too low in the water with this baggage, and the great river is swift. I do not wish to drown my grief in cold water. He took up a paddle and steered toward the western bank, following Aragorn's boat ahead, which had already moved out of the middle stream. So the company went on their long way, down the wide, hurrying waters, borne ever southward. Bare woods stalked upon either bank, and they could not see any glimpse of the lands behind. The breeze died away, and the river flowed without a sound. No voice of bird spoke in the silence. The sun grew misty as the day grew old, until the gleam in the pale sky hung like a white pearl. Then it faded into the west. And dusk came early, followed by a gray and starless night. Far into the dark hours they floated on, guiding their boats under the overhanging shadows of the western woods. Great trees passed by like ghosts, thrusting their twisty, thirsty roots through the mist down into the water. It was dreary and cold. Frodo sat and listened to the faint lap and gurgle of the river fretting among the tree roots and driftwood near the shore until his head nodded and he fell deep into an uneasy sleep.
There we have it, folks. That is the end of my stream today. I love y'all. Thank you so much for being here. Um, as some of y'all know, I am going to be going on a little bit of a trip for much of the rest of the month. Um, I'm going to be traveling from the 23rd, that is this coming Monday, uh, through the 8th, which is a Wednesday. Um, I am hoping that unless something really needs attending to, that I should be able to stream on the 9th as usual. Um, I do not have any plans coming back. I should be okay. The only issue would be if I am just absolutely dead exhausted and I need to reset my, uh, my, why is sleep calendar the only thing coming to mind? <laughs> uh, reset my sleep schedule. Um, because, uh, I'm going to be about as far out of this time zone as I think I've ever been. Um, going to be going to New Zealand. Uh, my dad was heading there and, uh, so I am going to have the opportunity to join him. He invited me to go along, and so I am thankful because otherwise there's no chance I would have the <laughs> the cash on hand to take a trip out there. Um, so thank you, Dad. Um, everybody, I hope you have a fantastic time. Um, I plan to be checking in for various things uh, because, of course, the month is not over. I would absolutely love to, um, I mean, I'm going to be getting lots of pictures and hopefully quite a bit of video as well, um, but uh, I'm going to be checking in. I, I would love to do a stream if I can manage it while I'm there. I do not know what sort of availability for that I will have. Um, there's a lot of, like, stream infrastructure that needs to be in place. I need to have, like, really good internet, especially. It's the big one. Um, and so I don't even know, like, what my service is going to be like while I'm down there. We shall see. I would love to... It, it won't be, like, a, a, a full-on, like, reading stream necessarily, but but uh, I would love to check in with y'all. That'd be cool, right? Anyway, folks. I love y'all. I will see you pretty soon. Perhaps not as soon as we would all like, but uh, soon enough nonetheless. Everybody, thank you so much for being here. I love y'all, and I'll see you later on.